This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good morning. It's still morning, right? And I didn't see any of you guys here in the earlier one. Y'all slept in. This year we're doing something a little different with Science on Saturday. We're broadcasting this event live, online, and taking questions from our virtual audience. Tune in by listening to the live webcast tab at the Livermore Labs Facebook page. You can watch it on your mobile device by visiting livestream.com slash LLNL. And you can post questions for the presenter with the chat box being below the video player using Twitter by including the Science on Saturday hashtag. We'll be making recordings of this science on Saturday events available on demand on Facebook and in live stream. So without further ado, let's give you science on Saturday. Welcome to the Livermore and to the Bankhead Theater, and thank you for coming for the first of four science on Saturday presentations. Livermore, <clears throat> Lawrence Livermore Laboratory produces this science presentation with the help of local educators. So a great big thanks goes out to the lab. Our topic today is the gamma ray spectrometer at Mercury a seven-year journey to the innermost planet. Where were you August of 2004? Think about that, seven years ago. That's when a Delta II rocket carrying a 485-kilogram spacecraft named Messenger was launched in its mission to study the planet Mercury. Today, Dr. Morgan Burks and AP physics teacher Dan Burns will address the specialized instrumentation for gamma-ray spectroscopy and gamma-ray imaging that are packed on Messenger. Dan Burns teaches Earth and Space Sciences and AP Physics at Los Gatos High School. Dan has a BS in Aerospace Engineering. And his credits include Department Chair, Past President of the Northern California and American Association of Physics Teachers, Curriculum Development and Teacher Workshops for SETI, USGS, NASA, American Association of Physics Teachers, and San Jose State University, and has several pictures published in astronomy magazines. Another known fact about Dan's is that he uses cartoons to teach physics in his classroom, especially The Simpsons. Check it out on a website. Dr. Burks is a physicist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and specializes in instrumentation for gamma ray spectroscopy and gamma ray imagery. He was part of a team that built the first instrument that could be accurately imaged and locate gamma ray sources with a 360 degree field of view. He received his PhD in applied physics. However, his graduate years were spent at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory where he developed a novel type of readout for charged particle detectors. Please welcome Dr. Burks and Dan Burns. (laughs) 
So good morning. My name is Dr. Morgan Burks, and I'm a physicist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And today, I would like to talk to you about a gamma-ray spectrometer that my group built and delivered for NASA's MESSENGER spacecraft. That spacecraft launched in August of 2004 on a Boeing Delta II launch vehicle and spent seven years traveling through the inner solar system before finally reaching the planet Mercury and going into orbit around that planet. Our instrument, our gamma-ray spectrometer, is now taking the first ever gamma-ray data of that planet. But before I go into the details of our instrument, uh, first here, for a bit of perspective, here's the picture of the spacecraft as it's being assembled and tested. And we highlight the gamma-ray spectrometer uh, at the top there, so you can see kind of how big it is. But first, I'm going to talk about the planet Mercury. It's a very interesting planet with a lot of surprising facts about it. And there's a lot that we don't yet know. So I'll talk about what are the science questions that we hope to answer with the MESSENGER uh, mission at Mercury. Then I'll talk about getting there. Turns out it was quite a challenge to get to Mercury and to go into orbit, a challenge for the spacecraft and our instrument. I'll talk about those and, and what we did to resolve those challenges. And then finally, I'll talk about our gamma-ray spectrometer, and I'll describe what gamma rays are and why they are of interest to uh, science. And one point that I'd really like to make is that our gamma-ray spectrometer, although it achieves the best resolution of any comparable technology, there's a really big catch. And that catch is it only works at minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. That's negative 300 degrees at Mercury, the closest planet to the sun and one of the hottest places in the solar system. So I'll describe how we managed to achieve that in our instrument. So Mercury is very interesting. Um, There's a lot of surprising things about it. One of the most surprising is that the day on Mercury is twice as long as the year on Mercury. So let's think about what that means. A year on Mercury is different from a year on Earth because Mercury goes around the sun in 88 days, 88 Earth days, that is. But the sun takes 176 days to rise, to go across the sky, to set, and to rise again. So it takes two Mercury years for the sun to come up and set and go around. That's very uh, surprising. And... Um, something else that happens is depending on where you're standing on Mercury, sometimes you'll see, if you could stand there, uh, you would see the sun rise and then go back down and start to set again before coming all the way up and setting on the other side. And that's because Mercury is going so fast around the sun that sometimes it's going around the sun faster than it's spinning. And so you get these funny effects on Mercury. And being so close to the sun... Uh, The sun is the equivalent of 11 times as bright as we see here on Earth. And so what happens is the face of Mercury that's towards the sun gets extremely hot. It can get above 700 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot enough to melt lead. And the cold side, the dark side on the back, can get below 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you have these extreme uh, temperature differences across Mercury. And that provides uh, a real challenge for any uh, mission trying to uh, operate in Mercury orbit, and we'll discuss that. 
Now, it turns out that Mercury is the least studied of any of the planets except Pluto. And when Mercury launched in 2004, Pluto was still considered a planet. Uh, Two years later, it got demoted. It's no longer a planet. But Mercury itself has not been studied except for once in the 70s, in 1974 and 1975. The Mariner 10 spacecraft did three flybys of the planet. And that time is able to fly by, and it could take some pictures of part of the service. It could not take pictures of all the service, and it could not go into orbit. We did not have the technology at that time to do that at, at Mercury. So here is a list of some of the interesting science questions that we hope to answer at Mercury. One of those is, why is Mercury so dense? We know that Mercury's core is made up of iron. In fact, most of Mercury consists of its very dense iron core. It's made of very heavy stuff. However, Mercury, although it's made up of heavier stuff than any of the other planets, is not the densest planet. And so I have a um, question out there. Does anybody know... You may want to volunteer, which is the densest planet, and you get uh, bonus points if you know why it's the densest planet. Do we have any guesses out here? Someone right in the front? Which? It's not Venus, although Venus is pretty dense right here. Nope, Jupiter is actually a gaseous planet, so it's big and probably the most massive, but not the densest. Excellent. Why is that? Okay, <laughs> anybody know why Earth is the densest? Mm-hmm. Right. So much water. No, no, not because of water. Let's try something in the back here, or the red shirt. So you're getting close. So um, uh, Mercury is made of denser material than Earth, but because Earth is so big compared to, to Mercury that the gravity of the Earth compresses... Uh, it down to becomes to where it becomes slightly more dense even than Mercury. So Mercury is made of the heaviest stuff, but Earth is slightly more dense. So scientists want to understand Mercury and how it became to be made of such uh, dense material. Scientists also want to understand the geological history of Mercury, that is, how it formed and what processes happened uh, on its surface. We'd also like to understand its magnetic field. Mercury has a weak magnetic field, um, but until recently, we could not explain how it had a magnetic field. So I'll discuss what we're learning about that. Mercury doesn't really have an atmosphere. It has a very, very, very thin atmosphere called an exosphere, which is made up of hydrogen and helium and oxygen and trace uh, elements. So it's not enough to be an atmosphere, but it has important uh, implications for the planet. But probably the most surprising question is, could there be ice at Mercury? There's very strong evidence that, in fact, there is ice at Mercury, which is surprising, considering that it's the closest planet to the sun. So here we see a picture of the Earth, and next to it is uh, is Mercury. Mercury is a little bigger than the moon. And we know that Earth is made up of a solid iron core, and then it has a molten liquid core outside of that. And then we have the surface crust. And we know that the magnetic field on Earth is due to the motion of this fluid molten core in Earth. But because Mercury is so dense and made of this, uh, what we thought was kind of solid iron, 
We didn't think it had a fluid core, and therefore we could not explain why it had a magnetic field. But recent measurements have shown that, in fact, Mercury does have a thin layer of a molten core around it. And it's that that molten core that gives rise to uh, its magnetic field. Now, here's a very dramatic picture that describes one of the theories of how we think Mercury formed. One of these theories suggests that early on in its history, it was impacted by another body, maybe a small planet or a moon, and had a cataclysmic effect that heated up the surface and boiled off any volatile materials, leaving only, for example, the iron and other refractory materials in its core. And our gamma-ray spectrometer can help determine if this or other theories are the correct theory to help explain Mercury by studying the surface of the planet and determining what its surface composition is, that is, what elements make up the surface. And by looking at the ratios of those elements, we can help determine whether this theory or some other theories best explain uh, Mercury's formation. This photograph was just taken last year. Um, Until the MESSENGER spacecraft went into orbit around Mercury, most of the planet had never been observed before. And only recently we were able to photograph the entire surface. And this planet, uh, this picture was particularly exciting for geologists because it shows um, clearly that at some point in Mercury's history there was volcanic activity, there was lava flow. And that's interesting because volcanoes are just a symptom of what's happening inside the planet with its, um, the hot pressure and density and the energy inside the planet. The volcanoes are a way for that energy to be released. And so this is providing uh, important clues to them to understand uh, its surface. And finally, this is a radar picture. And these bright uh, spots that look like rocks are actually thought to be ice on the poles of Mercury. Now, this is very surprising because Mercury is so close to the sun. As we saw, the surface can get uh, above 700 degrees. But Mercury, like Earth, has its poles such that the sun never sees the poles directly. The poles at Mercury, you only see the sun on the horizon. So, like Earth, the north and south poles don't get hot. In fact, it's even worse at Mercury because there's no atmosphere. On Earth, we have an atmosphere, and the parts of the Earth that get hot around the equator, the atmosphere then transfers some of that heat up to the poles. But Mercury has no atmosphere, there's no way to transfer that heat up. So Mercury is very unusual in that the sides that get extremely hot around the equator, uh, they stay hot, but the poles in the backside can get extremely cold. And so we believe there may be ice at Mercury. So now we talked about why we want to go to Mercury and what we want to study. Now let's discuss what some of the challenges were. One of those challenges is that until recently, they thought it wouldn't be possible to go into orbit around Mercury because they thought too much fuel would be required. This is surprising because Mercury, Mercury is relatively close to us, about 100 million miles, compared to some of the uh, outer planets, say Neptune and Jupiter, Jupiter, which are much farther away. So one of the questions I'm going to try to address in a minute is, why did it take so much fuel to get there? And of course, it's one of the hottest uh, spots in the solar system. However, Mercury is not the hottest planet. Does anybody know what the hottest planet is? Right here? 
Yes, excellent. Do you know why it's the hottest planet? Excellent, very good. Actually, I think we have a prize. Do we have, um, we have these little prize we're giving out for questions? Excellent. Good job. So the answer was Venus, and because it has an atmosphere. So even though Venus is farther away from Mercury, um, because it has an atmosphere which is made up of carbon dioxide and sulfuric acid, that atmosphere absorbs the Earth's sunlight and captures it kind of like a blanket. And so Venus gets hotter and hotter and hotter. Where Mercury, even though it's close to the sun, reflects a lot of its heat. So it gets extremely hot, but not as hot as Venus. Okay, um, with regards to our instrument in particular, there were specific challenges. Not only is there the extreme uh, thermal conditions found at Mercury, and of course we have to cool our detector to minus 300 degrees, but during the seven-year journey, the detector was exposed to a lot of cosmic rays, and there was radiation damage that occurred as a result. And so that's another issue that we have to deal with. So let's talk about how the spacecraft got there. It launched in 2004 and went on an epic seven-year journey through the inner solar system before finally going into orbit around Mercury. And it required many different flybys of other planets to get there. It started off with a flyby of Earth, two flybys of Venus, and several flybys of Mercury. And in fact, the very launch was dramatic. Um, when the, when the uh, spacecraft launched in, from Cape Canaveral, Florida in 2004, some people might remember that Florida was hit by four hurricanes that year. And our spacecraft, or the rocket, was almost unable to launch because there were so many hurricanes and tropical storms in Florida that year. We almost missed our launch window. But it was able to launch. It did go through all these flybys and it eventually got to Mercury and went into orbit. So this long trajectory following all these different uh, planets um, took seven years. So I have another question that I want to ask is why were we unable to go just directly to Mercury? Why did we have to go through this long path to get there? Does anybody have any ideas? There? Exactly, because of the fuel requirement. But do you, have, do you know why this helped us, even though we went on this long path? Excellent. I think if I understood you right, let's get a prize for this gentleman there. The reason we had to go on this long, circuitous path is because we actually used the gravity of these other planets to slingshot the spacecraft around and send it in the direction we wanted. So it was able to save fuel by using this crazy trajectory around these other planets. And we have a movie that shows this. Take a second to load here. What you're going to see is the spacecraft launching from Earth, and it goes around the solar system, does a flyby of Earth, and that slingshots it into the uh, inner solar system. Then it's going to do the same thing around Venus, and it's going to continue to do this, and now it gets crazier and crazier. It's going around Venus, now it's going to go in and start going around Mercury, does it several times, and it's going around and around the sun. That's why it's taking seven years. And finally, at the end, it meets up with Mercury and then goes into orbit. And this whole process, uh, the spacecraft had to travel five billion miles around the sun over and over to finally get there. 
So those of you who have had physics or are going to take physics might recognize this equation here. It's Newton's famous uh, law of uh, gravity. And what it says is that the force between two objects is proportional to the mass of those objects and inversely proportional to the distance, or r, squared. And the reason this is important is because if you look at the sun and the planets and think about the gravitational force from the sun, the spacecraft, messenger, is actually falling into the sun. And this blue line you can think of as a hill. It represents the force of gravity. But think of it as a hill. If you were to release a ball from Earth and let it roll down towards the sun, you could see that it would start going faster and faster and faster on its way as the force of gravity increased. And in fact, what happens is that the spacecraft gets, goes as fast as 140,000 miles per hour. It's a maximum speed. And so getting to Mercury is not a problem at all. The problem is stopping once you get there. In fact, most of the fuel carried on the spacecraft was burned in a few minutes in the very last approach of Mercury so they could slow down enough to go into orbit. So the problem with Mariner 10, this was the spacecraft that visited Mercury in the 70s, was that it could not carry enough fuel to slow down. So it had to just fly by at 100,000 miles per hour, take a few quick pictures, and that's all they could do at that time. Now, once we get there, the problem is that we're so close to the sun that we have to have a sunscreen. This is this kind of gray shade behind the spacecraft that has to face the sun at all times and protect the instruments. If at any point the spacecraft tilts such that it's viewing the sun directly, instruments on board the spacecraft start to melt within minutes. They fail within about three minutes. So it has to constantly be protected. And even the solar panels, which are designed to absorb the sunlight and produce power, are mostly mirrors to reflect the sunlight. And they only view the sun at a very shallow angle. This keeps them from overheating and from melting. Once the spacecraft got to Mercury, it entered into a 12-hour orbit. This graph on the right shows the planet Mercury and the spacecraft in this 12-hour orbit around it. And you see that the periapsis is only 200 kilometers. It's about 120 miles. Periapsis is the technical term for the point of closest approach. So the spacecraft comes within 120 miles of the planet every 12 hours. And what happens can be shown on this plot on the left. This is a simulation we did showing the heat spike that we get every 12 hours. So as the spacecraft comes in, comes very close to the planet, and it heats up. And part of the spacecraft, you can see, gets up to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 150 degrees Celsius. And then it cools down as the spacecraft goes away from the planet. And then 12 hours later, it comes by the planet again. And so every 12 hours, we get this heat spike. And that's one of the things we had to deal with and had to test here at Earth um, as we were building and testing this instrument. Now, our gamma-ray spectrometer is one of several instruments on board. There's also uh, ways of detecting infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays, neutrons. There's a magnetometer for measuring the magnetic field. There's a laser altimeter, which measures the surface profile, measures the height of the surface of the entire planet. 
and various other um, scientific instruments. Here's a picture showing some of those instruments, the X-ray spectrometer, for example, and the magnetometer. And then you can see our gamma-ray spectrometer. So now let's talk about this instrument. And I want to start off by um, explaining what gamma rays are and why they're of interest to science, why we want to study them. So gamma rays are a type of radiation. They're like X-rays, but higher energy. And so other forms of radiation are, of course, X-rays, neutrons, electrons, which are also called beta rays, alpha particles. And these are all different types of energy or radiation that are given off by um, atomic nuclei. So gamma rays, in particular, are given off when a nucleus decays from uh, what's called an excited state to a more stable state. And what that means is you might have, for example, an element of uh, cobalt that could decay and become uh, nickel, an atom of nickel. And when it does that, it has to release energy. In this case, it releases it in the form of gamma rays. So there are many types of radioactive materials. When you, when you think of a radioactive material, you usually mean something that gives off radiation, such as gamma rays or x-rays. And common materials are uranium and plutonium, something we've all heard of. You may not have heard of americium. Americium is a radioactive material that's in all of your smoke detectors and helps make the smoke detector work. Also, bananas are slightly radioactive. They have radioactive potassium. So you don't have to worry. They're completely safe to eat. But if you had a very sensitive detector, you could actually detect the radiation in bananas. And uh, iodine is another material that if you go to the doctor, there's some treatments that you get that use radioactive iodine. And so these radioactive materials are uh, very common. Now, I think... Um, now we want to go to a demo. We're going to turn it over to Dan for a minute, and he's going to talk to us about how we detect uh, gamma rays and different types of radiation. So I have an old-school Geiger counter here, uh, retired, uh, thankfully, from a uh, fallout shelter. And I've got a couple of radioactive sources here. Uh, this is strontium-90, just a very small sample. And this is cobalt-60. And one of these is producing beta rays or beta particles, which are just high-energy electrons. And the other one is producing gamma rays. So let's see if we can figure out which is which. Gamma rays are much more penetrating than beta rays, so it's harder to stop them. And so here's the Geiger counter over the green one, pretty hot. And the orange one, still a lot of counts, maybe not quite as much as the green. And so I've got some aluminum here. So I'm going to put the aluminum over the green one. Hey, it's going right through. Aluminum over the orange one, going right through. Let's try some more aluminum. More over the green. Oh, that cut it down. And more over the orange. Oh, I think maybe we know what's what here. And more aluminum. Boy, hardly any getting through now. But the orange one's going right through. So what's the orange one? That would be gamma. Let's see if we can stop it with some lead. Thick piece of lead, getting right through. More lead, right about four times thicker than what they put on you at the dentist. Still getting through. Oh, now maybe we're down to background. 
one more for good measure. And so much more penetrating. And so the gamma ray spectrometer can actually measure some gamma rays coming from beneath, a little bit beneath the surface of mercury because uh, they do pass through solid material very well. Back Excellent. to you, Morgan. Thank you. So um, gamma rays are also part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And the electromagnetic spectrum is one of the most important concepts in science, so we're going to talk about it for just a minute. The electromagnetic spectrum can be thought of as all the wavelengths of light that include the the light that we can see, so the various colors like red, green, and blue, but also those colors of light that we can't see. So we know that some animals can see in the ultraviolet. Some animals can sense a bit in the infrared. For example, snakes can sense uh, infrared. But our eyes are not tuned to see things like radio waves, microwaves, x-rays, gamma rays, and so on. But these are, in fact, all just different frequencies of light. They have different frequencies and they have different wavelengths. And what's interesting about the electromagnetic spectrum and that makes it so important for science is that each part of it interacts with matter in a different way and therefore has different uses. So, for example, radio waves have a very long wavelength about the size of buildings, and they travel long distances, and therefore they're useful for communications. X-rays, however, have very, very short wavelengths, and they're easily stopped by bone, for example. So that's why you use when you go to the doctor, and you can make an X-ray of your, of your arm or of your teeth, for example. And gamma rays have the very, very, very shortest wavelength of any type of light. And gamma rays, as we talked about, are emitted from a nucleus of an atom. And so now I want to talk about how gamma rays are produced at mercury and how we measure them and and how that helps us learn something about this process. So I have a movie that starts with the surface crust of mercury. And Mercury is exposed to a lot of cosmic rays from space. Cosmic rays are mostly protons. These protons come in, they interact in the material, and they give off neutrons, and they scatter, and they activate the material, that is, make the surface of Mercury very radioactive, and then it gives off gamma rays. And those gamma rays we can detect from uh, the spacecraft. And the reason this is interesting is because those gamma rays tell us exactly what the surface material is made of. So by measuring those gamma rays, you can tell. Is it iron? Is it silicon? Is it uh, thorium? uh, Various other types of materials. So we have the gamma rays that are produced from the cosmic rays. We also have gamma rays shown in this circle that come from potassium and thorium and uranium, which are naturally occurring materials in Mercury's crust. These same materials are in Earth's crust. So if you were to walk outside with Dan's Geiger counter, you could walk around and you would be able to uh, measure gamma rays here and there. And that's because our Earth is a little bit radioactive. Not very much, but a little bit. Mercury, on the other hand, is very radioactive. And the reason is, unlike Earth, Mercury has almost no atmosphere to protect it from the cosmic rays. Our atmosphere absorbs much of the cosmic ray energy. We also have a strong magnetic field on Earth that deflects the cosmic rays, and so um, uh, that helps protect us. But at Mercury, there's a very weak magnetic field, and it's not protected. So as a result, the surface is very radioactive. But that's good for us because that gives us something to measure and allows us to study the surface of the planet. 
And this is what a gamma ray spectrum might look like. This would be if you took a measurement for many days, for example, and you see a bunch of peaks, a bunch of lines or a spike sticking up. And each one of those spikes corresponds to a different element. In this case, it could be barium and europium and hafnium and a bunch of exotic elements. And you can think of this as a fingerprint for the material you're looking at. That is, if you have the surface of a planet or some material that you want to know what it's made of, and if you can measure the gamma rays coming from it, you can tell what its composition is. And so now we're going to do another demonstration where we're going to show you how to do a spectrum kind of like this, but instead of with gamma rays, we're going to do it with visible light. So I'm going to turn it over to Dan, and he's going to show us how to do this. So you were given a diffraction grading Came in, and we're going to use the diffraction grating and your eye, we're going to turn you into a spectrometer. A sp- spectrometer is an instrument that analyzes light. It breaks it up into its component colors, which are component wavelengths or energies. Um, the visible light energy is not quite as much as gamma rays. And so first I have to calibrate our spectrometers, and I'm going to do that with this neon sign. And so if we get the stage lights off and the, uh, the further down the lights, the better this will work. And so normally you're used to looking through something at a light. But the image you want to see is not here, it's off to the side. And so those of you who are kind of closer, you might see a green rectangle about where I'm at. Those of you further in the back, it's probably all the way over here by Morgan. And so in a little bit, we're going to look at some other lights that are harder to see. This is your spot. If this is where you see the green rectangle, if you see it here, this is where you want to look. <clears throat> Those of you who are closer here, and if you're really close, it might even be kind of overlapping right here. So does everybody see the green rectangle? That is an, a line in the element mercury spectra. And the mercury is the blue here, but your spectrometer shows you, no, there's actually some green coming out of, out of that too. And so let's take a look at a different element. And we want up here on the screen the computer slides. And so we've got four elements up there. This light here is one of those elements spectra. And so I want you to see if you can match it. It's not going to look exactly like it. It's not easy to do this. Some of you should should see some little vertical lines about here. And if you're further back, maybe little vertical lines here. And those of you all the way in the back, they're kind of around here, I think. And so which element, the top one there, hydrogen, the next one, helium, then argon, and neon. How many people think this is hydrogen? How many think it's helium? Oh, a lot more helium. How about argon? How about neon? A lot of neon. Uh, It is helium. And so those of you who picked helium, you calibrated your spectrometer, but again, this is not easy. Let's take a look at another light. And so again, some of you see the lines here, look, look off to the side. Some of you see them here, some way out here. 
How many people think this is hydrogen? How many think it's argon? Argon is a pirate's favorite element, right? Argon. How many think it's neon? It is, it's neon. So one more here, this is the tough one. But process of elimination should make it a little easier. And so this one you're not gonna see very many lines for. You might see a red one. Depending on how good your eyes are, you might see a purple one. And so how many people think it's, it's either hydrogen or argon, right? Is it hydrogen? It, it is hydrogen. And so congratulations, you guys were spectacular spectrometers. Back to you, Morgan. Excellent. Thank you. So now let's talk about how we actually detect the gamma rays in our instrument. So it turns out that we start with a crystal of extremely pure germanium. It just so happens I brought such a crystal here. This is one of the purest substances uh, that man can make, this particular crystal of germanium. And a lot of work went in, into making this. Um, but this is what's necessary to detect the gamma rays, and it's really the heart of our instrument. So we start with this crystal, and we apply an electronic amplifier to it, something that can measure very, very, very tiny signals. Then we apply 1,000 volts across this crystal. So those of you who may be in physics or are going to take physics, you know that when you apply a voltage across something, you generate an electric field. And this electric field is important because when the gamma rays come in and interact in the crystal, they produce positive and negative charges. The negative charges are electrons, and the positive charges are the holes that are the, basically the atoms that are missing the electrons. And we're going to ignore the electrons from now, the negative, because we're only concerned at this point about the positive charges. And the electric field causes those positive charges to drift into the center of the crystal, where they can then be collected by our amplifier and it produces a signal. And it's the signal that we use to generate the gamma ray spectrum to tell what type of gamma ray uh, we measured and therefore what the material was. However, the catch that I've been talking about all this time is that our crystal only works at minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. This is because germanium is a semiconductor material. So uh, silicon, uh, which you may have heard of, is also a semiconductor material. And that's what all our computer chips are made of, silicon. So everything in your iPhone, in your laptop, all these computer chips are made from silicon. Germanium is similarly, similarly a semiconductor material, but only at minus 300 degrees. So we have to cool it uh, to get to this temperature. And so now the question is, how do we do that? In the laboratory, it's pretty easy because we can use liquid nitrogen. And Dan here is going to show us something about liquid nitrogen and how we get something that cold. So I have something that is uh, actually a little colder than minus, minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. This is liquid nitrogen that is about uh, minus 200 Celsius for you metric fans and 77 uh, K for you absolute zero fans. 
And liquid nitrogen is not any more dangerous than hot water, but you want to be careful around it. And so there's a little bit in here, liquefied air really, but just mostly nitrogen. And I have a balloon here which has gaseous air in it. And so if I put it into the liquid nitrogen, what's going to happen to it? It might pop, right? Air might come out. But the air molecules in gas form, they're, they're moving around really fast, right? When I put them in the liquid nitrogen, they slow down, start to stick to each other, and they actually liquefy too. And so let's take a look. And so it deflated, but what's happening here? It's coming back to life. I think there's, I see something else in here. What else do we got? Well, there's another one. And there's some more. It's like a clown car, right? They just keep coming out. How did they all fit in there? Well, they were in gas form, right? So I have another one here. This is a racquetball. And racquetballs are very bouncy, right? And so it bounces pretty well. What if you think if I cooled this down in liquid nitrogen, would it bounce higher? Or not as high? Higher. Let's, let's see. And so I have one already chilled down here. And so we'll take it out. And here we go. Let's see how high it bounces. Oh. That wasn't supposed to happen. Try again. Higher. It's supposed to break. <laughs> One more time. It's worth it. It's still pretty cool, though, right? Very cool. So I'll give it one more try. Let's see, Morgan. Excellent. So now we know we have one option for keeping our germanium crystal cold, although we now know that we shouldn't throw it on the ground if we do so. The problem is that at Mercury, because it took us seven years to get there and it will be in orbit for a year, we couldn't carry enough liquid nitrogen to last that long. It would run out long before we got there. So we had to have another means of cooling our crystal. So in this case, we use something uh, called a Stirling Cycle Cryocooler. That's the technical term for basically a small refrigerator. This is a device that can cool our crystal to minus 300 degrees, and I brought one with me. And it's basically a small motor, and it has a cold finger here, this, this finger that sticks out. And there's a piston inside, and there's helium inside. And this piston works such that it expands the gas. The, the crystal is attached to this end here. And when that gas expands in the tip, it brings in, it um, absorbs the heat from the crystal. And then the gas is sent to the body of the uh, cryocooler, and the, uh, another piston compresses it, and that gas is pushed out. 
uh, excuse me, the heat is pushed out. And so it's kind of like your refrigerator home. The inside of your refrigerator is cold, but if you were to go touch the back of your refrigerator down at the bottom, that part is very hot. And this works uh, in a similar fashion. I have another picture that just shows, oops, can we go back to this screen? That shows the um, pistons inside, and you see where the gas expands. That's where the cooling happens. It sends the gas up to the top where it's compressed and sends the heat out uh, into the body. And so this is the device we use to actually cool our instrument. And this would work fine at room temperatures or in a laboratory, but mercury is so hot that it would quickly overwhelm the capacity of this small refrigerator. And so we had to take other measures to block the heat, to intercept uh, all this heat from the planet and from the sun. So first I have one slide on the basic thermal physics here. So there are only three basic ways for heat to be transferred from a hot object to a cold object. It can be convection, conduction, and radiation. So convection occurs in a gas, such as air. If you heat up the air in your house, for example, if you have central heating, it heats up the whole house, and so the air is used to transfer the heat around. But in mercury, that's not an issue because you're in deep space. Of course, it's a very good vacuum. There's no air around, so you have no convection. So convection's not really a concern. Then you have conduction. Conduction is when a hot object and a cold object touch, and heat is transferred from the hot object to the cold object. That's a problem because our crystal is cold, and we would like to somehow magically suspend it so that it doesn't touch anything hot. But of course, that's not possible. So we found a way to suspend it on this spider web of Kevlar fibers. We'll see that in a minute. Um, so that there's very little conductive heat to our crystal. So then what's remaining is radiation. Radiation, in this case, uh, thermal radiation, is primarily infrared heat. And the most common example of that is if you go on a cold night to a restaurant and you sit outside and they have those heat lamps. Those are giving off infrared uh, radiation to heat you while you sit. And that is the big issue because the sun is giving off a lot of infrared radiation and mercury itself is reflecting that infrared radiation back at us. So that's what we really had to deal with. That was our biggest problem. And the way we deal with this infrared radiation is we have our crystal and it's in this holder that gold can there that holds the detector and then we surround it with these infrared shields these are several cylinders that are highly polished with a mirror-like surface and then plated with gold and the reason we do that is that a highly polished mirror surface that's gold plated will reflect 98% of all infrared heat so only 2% gets through so we can vastly reduce the amount of heat that gets to our crystal. And then you also see some Kevlar wire there, which we use to make the suspension, to hold the crystal. And I have a picture that shows that a little bit as we're, we're winding up the suspension system, uh, as we're putting this together. And the reason we use Kevlar fibers is they have very low thermal conductivity. That means very little heat will be transferred through these fibers to our detector. And here is the uh, detector once it's all assembled here. And on the right, we see the detector holder and some of the instrumentation on the detector. We have temperature diodes so that we can monitor the temperature from Earth. So it's constantly sending the temperature back. 
We can read the signal, we apply high voltage, and we have several other things there that we can monitor and control the state uh, of the detector. And I happen to have one of these with me. So after the talk, this was the device we actually did all the tests on and made our measurements. And so um, after the talk, if you wanted to come take a look, uh, I'd be glad to show it to you. Now we're getting close to the end. But I want to show something here that, for me, is really exciting because this is some of the first data coming from our instrument from the planet Mercury. This is a gamma-ray spectrum, and this data is kind of like what you saw through your diffraction grating. What you see are a lot of peaks, and in this case, each peak corresponds to a different element in the surface of Mercury. So... Someone who's, uh, say, uh, trained and, and like a, a planetary geologist would be able to look at this and know that this peak, for example, corresponds to silicon, another one to titanium, aluminum, nickel, and so on. So they can look at this data and determine what mercury is made of. And in this case, this is an accumulation of data from the first 22 orbits around uh, the planet. And, of course, it's been orbiting much more since then, so there's a lot more data they're starting to take and, and, um, and to study. So, in summary, um, the Messenger spacecraft, after a seven-year journey, reached Mercury, went into orbit, and is starting to take data. Um, our instrument on board the spacecraft showed that we could actually cool it to minus 300 degrees in this incredibly harsh thermal environment uh, and perform very well. And it's now taking the first ever gamma ray data of this planet. And so the final slide I have is just to say, so what's next? What comes after this? What we're doing is we're taking this technology in our gamma ray spectrometer and we're converting it to something we can use in a handheld instrument here on Earth. And we use that to detect radioactive material on Earth. And that can be used either to prevent uh, smuggled nuclear material from coming in, such as uranium or plutonium, or to um, use in an emergency response if you're worried there might have been a radiation leak, for example. And I also brought this instrument. So if afterwards, if anyone wants to come down and uh, take a look, I'll be glad to uh, show it to you. So then before we... Wrap it up. There's two things. I would take some questions, but also since we have a lot of students here, I really want to encourage you to consider, if you're interested in science, really consider uh, pursuing a career in science and engineering. That's a, it's going to be a really good area for um, jobs through, you know, for decades to come. It's a fun career. It's very rewarding. So I'd really um, encourage you all to consider that. So now, do, do we have any questions? We have right here. Ah, good question. The question was, when did they come up with the idea for the crystal? So this germanium crystal that detects the gamma rays was invented in about the 1960s. And at that time, they could only use liquid nitrogen to cool the crystal. They didn't have mechanical coolers that would work properly at that time. Well, in the last decade or so, we were able to apply this mechanical refrigerator to cool our crystal. Hi. Uh, thank you. It was a Boeing Delta II launch vehicle. B-O-E-I-N-G, Delta II. 
We also have some questions from the, the web. So as they announced, this is going out uh, live. And so <laughs> what does the spacecraft messenger name mean? So the messenger stands for, I won't get this exactly right, but the Mercury Space Science and Geological uh, Spectrometer. I don't, didn't get that exactly right. So you can go on the web and you can find out. Then the other question is, what can the gamma ray spectrometer be used for here on Earth? So that's what we just talked about with this instrument. We're using this on Earth to detect radioactive materials, to respond to emergencies, and, and so on. It's very lightweight and it's portable and gives very high resolution. So I think we have time for one or two more questions. Let's go to the back. Anybody in the back? Wait back there. Okay, can you speak up just a little bit, please? Right. Okay, I think if I understood the question correctly, it's um, as we orbit the um, orbit Mercury over and over, is the data the same? And in fact, each orbit, as we go through periapsis, the point of closest approach. We're doing that in a different spot on the planet. And so every orbit is looking at a different part of the surface, a different part of the planet. And so the data changes with each orbit a little bit. Okay, we have right here in the yellow. Oh, I'm sorry, could you speak up? Ah, okay, good question. Why don't we use silicon instead of germanium? Because silicon, we don't have to cool. Thank you. We don't have to cool silicon like we do germanium. The reason is silicon is good for detecting x-rays, but because silicon is not very dense, gamma rays would pass right through it. So germanium is denser than silicon, so it's good for detecting gamma rays. We had another question from the web. Why is it important to explore mercury? Well, there's kind of two answers. Um, one answer is that everything we learn about mercury helps us also understand our own planet, to understand Earth um, and you know, how we got here and how our Earth formed and how it works and so on. So things that we learn about Mercury also help us on Earth. But the other answer is, I think it's just interesting to know about our solar system in general, to know about all the different planets. So we had a question here, and we have a microphone, great. This is working? Yeah. yeah. What does the spacecraft messenger's name mean? What does the name stand for? What? Say again. What does the name stand for? What does the spacecraft messenger's name mean? Yeah, so I said that earlier. It's basically the Mercury Surface Science um, uh, and Geological Spectrometer. Well, that's not that's close. <laughs> it's not exactly right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's one of the questions on there. Okay, right here. Oh, okay, good question. Will the messenger be brought back to Earth? In fact, it will not be brought back. Um, when the mission finishes, so it's a one-year mission, they've actually extended it to a second year because it's been so successful. When they finally finish um, and turn it off, it will continue to orbit around Mercury, but because it's clo so close to the sun, the sun will eventually pull it off, pull it out of Mercury's orbit, and it will fall into the sun, and, and that'll be the end of it. The question right here. Why 
Why doesn't it what with other spectrum? Well, why doesn't it look at other spectrums? So the gamma ray spectrometer specifically looks at gamma rays, but there's other instruments on the spacecraft that look at X-rays, that look at ultraviolet, that look at infrared, and so on. Okay, I'm going to go over here. I've been neglecting this side. Let's see who really wants to answer a question or ask a question over here. There we go. Right, right, right. You want to? So germanium is special because any material, the gamma rays will, oh, I'm sorry, the question was, why, why is germanium special and why use that material? Uh, gamma rays will interact in any material, but germanium is dense enough that it'll stop the gamma rays, but it also has a special property that the charges will drift through the crystal without being trapped. Other materials, the charges won't drift very well, so you don't get a good signal. So I think do we, we should probably wrap it up, but I will be here down on stage. Feel free to come down and talk to me, and I'll show you some of these other things. And so I really appreciate everybody coming out today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.